Have you ever had things break in production and you're not quite sure what went wrong? I remember the good old days when you had to go use things like tail and grep and then randomly click around the app to try and figure out what broke. <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore, thank heaven. All you have to do is go sign up for Airbrake and then install it in your app. Airbrake is really simple. You get a little code that you put into your config file and then you just install the gem. That's it. Really simple to set up. Then what it does is it aggregates all of the exceptions and errors that are thrown by your application so that you don't have to keep track of that anymore. It collects other information from the system as the errors occur, so parameters and things like that, depending on where the error occurs. And one thing that drove me crazy when we first started getting apps like Airbrake doing this work is that you would get 10,000 of the same error, and that doesn't happen anymore. Now they just aggregate it all together. You can go look at the individual errors and see where and what actually happened, but when it comes right down to it, they just let you know, hey, this error occurred 10,000 times, and then you go look at the individual ones so you can get them fixed. It's really easy to install. I already said that, but I just can't stress that enough. <laughs> you take two seconds, you get it installed, and then you're off to the races. When I'm running a business, that time that it saves me is huge. So go check them out at airbreak.io slash rubyrogues, and that'll let them know that we sent you. But seriously, just make your life easier. If you go check it out at airbreak.io slash rubyrogues, you'll get Airbreak free for 30 days, plus get 50% off the first three months on the startup plan. So go check them out. You can thank me later. Welcome, everyone, to Ruby Rogues. Today we have Eric Berry. <laughs> hey! <laughs> <laughs> and Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. And our special guest today is Takashi Kokuban. Hello. Nice to meet you. And my name is David Richards. And uh, today we're really excited to talk about uh, Ruby 3.0 and some of the speed improvements that Takashi's been working on and other uh, improvements to look forward to. So first off, let's just start with a, a quick introduction, uh, Takashi. Um, could you tell us just a, a basic background of some of the things you're you're working on? Okay, uh, I'm a Ruby committer since the last year, and uh, I'm as mainly I'm a maintainer of the ELB, a template engine, default template engine of Ruby, and I am also working on some uh, template and other template engine implementations like uh, Haml and Hamlet. It's another implementation, Hamo language. And uh, also, I'm a uh, work uh, employee of uh, Treasure Data, which is some uh, big data company. And uh, I'm working as a, mainly as a Layers application engineer. So uh, I'm improving the Ruby's performance uh, mainly for Layers application. And currently, I'm working on the JIT compiler that uh, is implemented in the under development in the Ruby 2.6. So hopefully you'll be able to use that in the next Christmas. Nice. We'll look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> the big question I have. <laughs> big question is, yeah. will Ruby 3 be released this year? And obviously the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for those who don't know what the uh, JIT compiler is, can you go into what it is, how it can be used, and if people are just going to benefit from it by default or if they will have to do something in order to really take advantage of it? Current JIT compiler implementation in Ruby 2.6 is that uh, method JIT compiler and the characteristics of it is the... Uh, it's uh, only available for a uh, method. Uh, so if you run a short learning script or some uh, plain script, uh, you, should, you would not be able to uh, gain a benefit from JIT compiler. So you, you should uh, create a method and you should, you should call the method uh, many times. Uh, at least you need to call the method uh, five times by default to invoke the JIT compiling. And also, you need to pass the hyphen hyphen JIT option to Ruby binary to use JIT compiler. So it's not available by default. And uh, it currently, it has some problems in performance, even though it's for performance improvement. Uh, it has some uh, performance regression 
uh, while the performance, the JIT compilation is going on. So, for example, in Rails application, uh, as it has many uh, methods to be compiled, uh, JIT, JIT, uh, with JIT enabled, uh, Rails application becomes a little slower during the compilation is going on. So, uh, it's uh, a lot. Of, there's there are a lot of things to work on, but uh, in some micro benchmarks, uh, JIT compiler can able is able to improve the Ruby's performance by uh, six times faster or six uh, three times faster in uh, depending on the benchmark. So uh, it's potentially uh, can it it can improve the performance uh, much better in some. Uh, benchmarks, but uh, uh, we need to make many improvements in that to gain a real-world application uh, in gain, gain uh, uh, many improvements in real-world applications. Yeah. And, you know, I think benchmarks are always nice and great, but the real-world application, that's where it boils down to. That's what we want to see yeah. uh, performance increase. So, and, you know, when I say the real-world application performance, I'm excluding the boot time for a Rails application or something like that because once the application is booted, who cares how long it took to boot if we are already, you know, running with the application? Mm -hmm. So in the example that you gave with the JIT compiler having to load up and compile a lot of these, you know, thousands of Rails methods, mm -hmm. once that's done, have you guys done any kind of benchmarks to see if the actual application performance has increased? I actually uh, benchmarked the performance after the old JIT compilation is done, but uh, okay. currently it is not so improved or rather it becomes a little slower. But uh, uh, okay. so probably it needs inlining method inlining. It's it's kind of optimization JIT compile by JIT compiler uh, because there are some me many methods in Rails Rails or Rails application uh, would have many uh, splitted uh, methods that can can't be easily uh, optimized by compiler. So. Yeah. I understand uh, we definitely need uh, method inlining to gain the best performance of Layers application with JIT compiler. Cool. So it sounds like you're getting more and more into what'll be easy for a regular Rails developer, a regular Ruby developer, just to use it um, as it gets more experience. So inlining the methods and working on JIT, a JIT compiler, are, are there any other major efforts that are being made to speed up Ruby 3.0? Other efforts are not only inlining methods. I made many efforts to inline some functions in uh, VM instructions uh, because uh, many VM instructions can be uh, compiled down to some usual C, C function calls. So it's very easy to inline uh, VM instructions, such as uh, plus, plus method is, uh, by default, it's just some very basic plus instruction. Not like actual Ruby method call, if it does, it's not redefined. So things like that can be very optimized by without method inlining. It sounds like some of the... Um... Uh, well, the way that Rails uses metaprogramming and some of the ways that Rails organizes itself might make it a little bit harder to optimize, at least for now. Yeah, yeah. working on. Yeah, if it if the some of the optimized methods are redefined, uh, the such basic optimization can't be available. So I need to work on the method in learning. Sounds like a tough problem. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm all for a faster um, interpreter. You know, I think that'd be great. But, you know, I think that most applications that people feel that are slow, a lot of times it's usually some inefficiencies in their code. Now, I yeah. refactored something uh, the other day. And, you know, the Fibonacci sequence is a great example, you know, a, a microcosm of the issue I was having. And, the speed increase that you can do just with refactoring code using memoization, just different techniques uh, that are built 
into Ruby and concepts that you can apply to your Ruby functions, you can get massive speed increases out of just reworking some things. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting too. Um, a lot of the, the culture at Ruby is that a lot of Ruby developers don't think that way, but it, it's absolutely true. You know, by thinking about optimization in our code as well, we can share some of that burden and, and enjoy that, that as and well. I want to solve the problem that is not essentially a problem by the developer. And like, uh, you may know that the fact that uh, while loop is faster than uh, each loop, uh, innumerable each, so, but uh, we as a developer want to write each loop instead of while loop. So I want to solve the, such unnecessary problem by <laughs> implementing the JIT compiler. I like that. I also like in, in, in the way that, um, the, well, Matt's put out there the three by three challenge to have a three, three times increase for Ruby 3.0. I love how that, that, that form of leadership of showing us, you know, what, what we, what we think we can accomplish and, um, and then letting us try different things to, to see what, what to do. I, I like how that seems to be um, creative and, and getting you involved in lots of different ways. Hmm. And Takashi, I, I've, I'm not going to claim to be like a deep knowledge guy of the Ruby internals and how that works, but mm-hmm. I, I'm watching this and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your face and I'm, I'm imagining you as this race car driver. Race this, car driver? This engineer of a race car where you seem like you get, you seem like you... Uh, you, you thrive for just a tiny little microsecond speed faster. And I could see you as this, you know, race car engineer who's just tweaking this screw here and tweaking this thing over here. And just every little tiny bit of speed that you increase makes it so that uh, it's a huge win. Is that how you look at, for example, you've worked on the Hamel library. You, of course, you're on ERB. Thank you for that. We love ERB. Uh, we don't like Hamel, but we love ERB. <laughs> <laughs> I like Hamel. I like Hamel a lot. <laughs> is, that how you see, is that how you see what you do? Like every tiny little microsecond that you get faster, it's just a huge win. Actually, I don't think ERB or Hamlet in performance optimization are good or beneficial for total laser application performance. I rather think there are any other some very big bottlenecks in Ruby interpreter itself. So like Trist, Ruby's method call is very slow compared to some C func- just C function call. And I think I believe I, I can solve such problem by implementing JIT compiler. So I actually tackling I'm actually tackling the Ruby's big bottleneck, some which is some hidden for now, to solve the real world problems rather than just um, uh, improving milliseconds or very small seconds for some race car. You said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you'd like to have a broad based. Uh, um, uh, improvements. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm not an expert in in the Ruby internals either, but I'm thinking about just what little I know in and implementing a JIT compiler and looking through some of the notes um, uh, as I've seen progress. It doesn't seem like that's a, an, an easy thing to implement. Um, how, how long have you been working on this compiler? I first really work on the JIT compiler using the LLVM. It, take, it took about three months, but uh, actually current JIT compiler for Ruby 2.6 is different from that. And uh, I started work on the current JIT compiler on the next September, and it took about one month to implement the first version of uh, current Ruby 2.6 JIT compiler. That's because uh, I expe- experienced that a very similar JIT compiler implementation in LLVM version. So I think the initial version implementation took about four months to implement that. And after that, it took many, uh, so much time to resolve the uh, race condition or some seg- seg faults 
or dead drugs or many other bugs. So actually, it took uh, a, a year <laughs> to come here. Wow. So now the LLVM was the first version. And then do I understand correctly that the current version of the JIT compiler is a registered transfer language? Is that is that um, mutually exclusive? Where it's it's now it's just the um, the register transfer language is that is that the main push on the JIT compiler or do I understand that correctly? Uh, LLVM is register transfer language based kind of and uh, but uh, Ruby's instructions are stack based so I need to I needed to uh, compile compile or translate such translate them but. Actually, I needed to do very similar tasks task to compile uh, stack-based instructions to LLVM IL or uh, C, F, C, C, C code, in, which is adapted in the Ruby 2.6. So it, they are using very similar code, and uh, I could use the, many of the outcome in the LLVM version. Okay, so LLVM is where you're you're focusing, and um, now I I don't know what what does LLVM stand for. It's originally it was originally a low level virtual machine, but it does not mean something right now. <laughs> it sounds like it keeps evolving as you've handled race conditions and other other issues you've been been working on. So you are mentioning my current text for JIT compiler. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I'm currently working on the JIT compiler for improving the portability or performance. And uh, portability has very uh, s- severe issues, like uh, supporting Windows or uh, many other uh, platforms that doesn't have GCC or Clang. Currently, JIT compiler only works on the with with the JIT comp- uh, GCC or Clang, so it has portability issues. And I want to solve those problems to at least uh, let work, let JIT compiler work on the Windows. But we really don't care about Windows, do we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want Ruby? Get a Linux box or Mac. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm using Linux or Mac, but uh, uh, Windows is a tier one support of Ruby. And yeah. uh, I know there are many people using Windows. Yeah. <laughs> So lots of improvements in the um, compiler, but it, it sounds like with big data and things that you're also working a lot on on concurrency. Um, do do you want to talk about concurrency and type systems? Um, I definitely want the uh, concurrency for Ruby because I sometimes needed to <laughs> uh, use Java instead of Ruby for some uh, performance intensive application. But uh, of course, I want to use Ruby if I can uh, use it for a specific purpose. And, and uh, so I very, uh, interested in, I'm very interested in the Koichi's current work. I know it's Ruby published in the RubyConf Tyrant at first, I think. It, he is going to show the initial version of uh, his uh, concurrency model, which is originally called Guild. So I'm very uh, looking forward to seeing the first version of it. So, so concurrency with Guild, um, how, does, how, does, how do they handle um, that? Or what's the, the big idea or an easy way to understand how that's being run? First of all, Koich doesn't like Thread at all. So it's not like uh, Thread, but rather uh, the Guild shares, does not share, not, uh, basically did, it does not share anything, and uh, it's uh, rather copy or moves the uh, responsibility of uh, object. But there is no public implementation that is available for us. So actually, we can say nothing for that, and we just need to wait for the Koichi. Okay. So, so what do you do now with, um, so it sounds like you were doing a lot of, of, of big data work with Ruby right now. Is that, is that right? Or is it mostly a mix or, or how do you, how do you solve it while you're waiting for, for Guild? 
Actually, uh, sometimes I try to use uh, Ruby's thread for uh, concurrent processing because even without Guild, we can uh, parallelize the I/O processing. But uh, anyway, we can, we, sh we need to uh, we need to wait for uh, CPU processing with CRuby implementation. So in that case, uh, if we if I have some uh, CPU intensive uh, processing as well. Uh, I just uh, switched to Java for now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to have a hard time coordinating, at least in Ruby uh, threads and some of these things. And like you said, if CPU mm -hmm. is is getting busy, then um, then we're kind of maxed out anyway. Yeah. Do you like to type uh, or write types? Yeah. Tell us about types. Actually. Uh, don't work on the type system at all, but uh, I sometimes write uh, types in my Ruby code. Or oh no no no, um, I just write the comment of the Ruby types. Like uh, in uh, yard, I probably yard format in some uh, at palam uh, string something, and uh, so I sometimes like to uh, write uh, types. To uh, make sure what uh, what would be come to what would come to the place, what values come to the place. So I I like to read the types in code to know what would come to the place. You know, that sounds uh, like a cardinal sin in Ruby to to have to introduce types. But <laughs> it sounds like uh, by introducing types, you're well. I I, I don't mind types personally, but um, so, so what's the um, what are some of the outcomes that you're getting as you're as you're using that? Mm, uh, I think it's good for readability, and uh, if it's uh, introduced for some type checking, uh, it would uh, automatically ensure that uh, uh, type annotation is correct. Uh, sometimes I I forget to maintain the type comment I write. So uh, it's good to automatically maintain the type uh, annotation written in the Ruby code. Okay, so um, so take some annotation, um, and then you can do some type checking, and then uh, how how do you actually automate the the updates? Do you just do that on your own? You 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 find a way to keep that updated, or is there a jam or a tool you you use for that? I heard that Yusuke and uh, one of the Ruby committer in Cookpad is working on the some experimental library that generates the type by profiling types. Like if when you run some R spec or mini test, uh, you can know the uh, what values would come to the uh, place or method. So you can profile the method by some using the trace point or some profile uh, uh, functions. So uh, by that method, uh, you can uh, automatically detect the type type that would come to that method. Okay. So um, <laughs> I know that for me, at least, I mean, I, I started writing code in, in C and I, I had a lot of experiences with Java and um, other languages before I found Ruby. And, and I loved not having to have types because I could focus on business logic. So it sounds like it would be an, an optional thing once your your business logic is ready. If you add types, you can have a little more safety in your code and a little more readability of what you intended to do with your code. Is that is that is that fair to say that you it's an optional thing you can add as you improve your code base? Uh yeah, I think it's it should be optional because I sometimes uh feel I'm I sometimes feel tired to write uh, many types. I, so I think uh, it should be optional because uh, it's it's important to have uh, some interface. But uh, for some private functions, private methods, I think it's less important to uh, annotate types because it's very uh, easy to understand what would come to the uh, private methods. But for public methods, it's hard to understand the interface because I need to uh, grab or search some uh, methods, uh, traces that cause the method. Yeah, it gets a little bit difficult to, to reason about public methods, um, especially because 
you know, if, um, well, sometimes I like to get the, the, the domain logic figured out and, and figure out what it's supposed to do. And then by then I'm, I'm being asked to get onto the next task. <laughs> <laughs> and so trying to figure out all the ways people might use my code in the future is usually a luxury I don't have. Mm-hmm. But private methods, that makes a lot of sense because you, you'll build a, a class that, that has what, what you need internally and, and that can stay very clean. And, and I like that. Yeah. And at the feature level, uh, Matt's, as Matt's done to like to write types, probably it must be some optional feature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know some people who would not want to do that at all. However, in you know, for me, I, I it, the type system is such a a thing where people who go to type systems wish that they were off of the type system, and the people who are off the type systems miss the value that the type system brings. So it's a grass is greener on the other side uh, conundrum uh, there. However, an optional path for type systems would be wonderful. Um, I know that that's how I think that's kind of how Elixir does it. That's how Elm does it. I believe they allow you to specify that optionally. Um, so yeah, that would be wonderful. I, I do have a question for you. As one of the one of the guys really excited for the concurrency, uh, the concurrency aspects of Ruby three. Do you have any idea on a release date for version three? Version three, <laughs> I can say JIT will be available in. 2.6, but uh, others, mm, I know, I, lem- I can remember some uh, other people's uh, re- uh, ideas on it, but uh, at least it's not 2.6. Uh, at least it's not uh, next Christmas. Probably it's about after two or three years, I think, but it's just my wild guess. Uh, it, it depends on the Koichi or some other Ruby uh, committers time. Uh, I have a stupid question, and or it might be a very brilliant one. I'm not sure yet. So depending on how you answer it. So we're going moving to a more optional type system. Would that open up the possibilities of having a native compiler for Ruby, so that we can actually compile the scripts or whatever functions we have into a um, low level executable? So you are expecting to have something like MLB like or yeah, yeah, yeah. Okra uh, or you know something where you can actually compile down the function and then get a runtime executable. Um, it needs to have some uh, a compiler, uh, some ahead of time compiler, and it's mm-hmm. based, uh, essentially that uh, essentially different from JIT compiler because. Uh, JIT compiler aims to improve the performance by use, utilizing the cache, which is available on runtime. So uh, it needs to have some different purposed uh, compiler that can uh, generate a function that has very uh, limited uh, runtime dependency. Uh, I, I would describe the details a bit. Uh, uh, current JIT compiler depends on the VM, VM availability, even if it can uh, execute uh, native code, uh, because sometimes uh, we need some, we does speculation for optimization like uh, inlining functions, uh, not so, so, uh, not either, sorry, uh, inlining methods uh, that can be uh, fallback to the uh, bytecode uh, execution. So at least, the native code should be able to execute a bytecode byte code by VM. So it's kind of complex to achieve the such binary or some uh, sing, single binary executable. So mm, <laughs> I think it, it will have uh, another difficulty to achieve such goal in addition to achieve uh, performance by JIT compiler. Yeah. When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers 
feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like Backups, Node Balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code RubyRogues2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is RubyRogues2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com careers to see their available positions. So have you played around with the Crystal language much to kind of see what they're doing with uh, the compiled Ruby and just some of the speed that Crystal runs at? Um, I actually, I have, I've never uh, worked on with worked on the Crystal language. Do you, uh, could you uh, experience some benefits in it? Yeah, so it's a type system uh, language that you can write your scripts, uh, which very closely resembles the Ruby language, but it is not Ruby. It's different, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they tried to make it as close to Ruby as possible while being a type safe system. And you can compile it down into a runtime executable. So uh, the speed differences aren't astronomical like it would be with a compiled C program and a Ruby script, but it is still uh, of some magnitudes faster. Mm. It's interesting. I've I've used Crystal as well. It, it requires well that whole type, the 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 discipline to build a typed system, and and there are some things you can and can't do. And it sounds like from your description of, of having some guarantees on long running uh, dependencies, um, you really can't do that the way we philosophically handle things in Ruby, you know, that we allow a lot of metaprogramming and a lot of, um, well, a lot of flexibility. And so a a JIT compiler sounds like it's just uh, a fundamentally or ideologically opposite (laughs) approach to the way Crystal's solving it, as, as far as I understand it, that, that getting um, mm-hmm. a compiler to work just in time uh, and, and speeding that up and making that work well with the flexibility rather than constraining the, the Crystal. Is that, is that fair? Is that, am I understanding both concepts well? or I, I'm, I'm trying to summarize everybody's ideas, maybe poorly. Yeah, I guess uh, constraining the features or of some dynamic Ruby features would be very uh, uh, beneficial for improving the performance. I very I I saw uh, many features that blocks many optimization in Ruby. So I wish I could use many optimization. Uh, if Ruby does doesn't have many dynamic features. So, uh, I th- so uh, it's very different things. Uh, JIT, Ruby's JIT compiler wants to improve the performance without uh, dropping or removing the dynamic features. So, yeah, it's very difficult problem. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too because a lot of the optimization we talk about, you know, is in the machine or in the output of the code, but but a lot of it, the real the real pipeline involves the people building it too. And so being able to say, well, I need to be able to understand the domain I'm working in, you know, all the RELs, metaprogramming, all the easy ways to understand how to mm-hmm. work with things. Um, it reduces our, our need for templated code and, and for um, a lot of structures that are easy, you know, easy just to build our intention. So I, I find that really an interesting thing is that, you know, the overall business value of using Ruby really is in the whole pipeline involving the, the people, the development, the deployment, and the runtime. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's fair to say that, um, that there are different problems um, that they're trying to solve, which I like. Yeah, productivity and performance is trade-offs in it. Yeah. So with using the JIT compiler, is there an increase in memory usage as well? Yeah, uh, it increases a memory. Of course, it needs to increase the memory usage, 
but uh, it's uh, very limited compared to JRV or some JVM-based uh, implementations. Like okay. uh, with OffCarrot, it increases the memory usage about 10 or 20% uh, compared to the only just VM execution, but it improves the performance mm -hmm. uh, much more, yeah. Yeah, you can always buy more hardware. You can't buy more time, so... <laughs> yeah. it, it, it uses uh, much more memory in very uh, small script, but in real-world applications, uh, the memory increase would be very limited compared to the original one. Mm -hmm. And also, so I can say that memory footprint uh, for compiling uh, methods with GCC is smaller than uh, one for LLVM. LLVM uses much more memory, but uh, it's not so uh, extremely l large compared to some JLV uh, or some Java-based ones. Nice. So do you, do, you, do you get to work with Matt's? Do you ever like meet up with Matt's for lunch or, you know, say, hey, dude, let's go hang out? Uh, uh, I need to share that uh, uh, in, in Japan, uh, in Tokyo, especially, uh, we have... Uh, Ruby developers meet up uh, once a month, uh -huh. and uh, I can meet uh, many Ruby core committers in living in Japan. And uh, uh, in in all uh, meetings, uh, Mats attend that meeting by uh, Skype or something. Uh -huh. So I can talk to him in that meeting if I attend to that. Very cool. Nice. I, I met him once at a conference. Yeah. He is one hip dude. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've met him once at a conference as well. It's it's kind of a nice experience, isn't it? <laughs> so Takashi, when people, or at least outside of Japan, think of Ruby, they usually go fall right to Ruby on Rails internet websites. <laughs> uh, what are some things that you do with Ruby that's outside of the web domain? I can think of one thing, which is uh, middleware or, uh, named uh, Fluentd. Do you know Fluentd? Mm -mm. Uh, it's a log collector. I typed that. Uh, it's a, a log collector, which is also used for some cloud services like uh, AWS or GCP. And uh, so okay. it's um, middleware uh, written with Ruby. And so it's good for uh, improving. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, it's good to improve the performance of such middleware because uh, it's uh, it will be used under the very high workload. So uh, yeah, sometimes uh, Ruby can be used for such uh, very uh, large scale application. Cool. So it works as middleware. Uh, what what is it about Ruby that makes it? Great. What's what? What makes that a great fit for for that? Yeah. Um. The great point of the uh using great point of using Ruby for Fluentd is that uh it can be easily extended by uh writing a plugin using Ruby. So as Ruby is good for productivity, uh we can easily extend the middleware by uh, writing Ruby's. So there are many, so many plugins of Fluentd written in Ruby, and uh, so uh, if we if we use Java for the same thing, uh, it would be harder to write plugins. So I think it's the good point of Ruby for using the middleware. Interesting, yeah, because it's so dynamic and easy to to plug in something. Yeah, um, and it sounds like with uh, the middleware, you can build quite an interesting data pipeline, you know, anything you need to push, any kind of transforms you need to make or, or, or connect with different types of, of environments. Wow, yeah. that sounds actually very interesting. I don't know why it's never crossed my, my radar until today. I'll check <laughs> that out. Actually, currently, we would be able to use MRuby for such purpose because uh, MRuby is for embedding Ruby for uh, some softwares. If we can software Plugins use embedded for for and uh, uh, but uh, if we do do so, if we do 
uh, embedding uh, MLB to some C or non-Ruby languages, uh, it's very, very hard to in, uh, maintain the middleware itself. So I think it's still beneficial to use Ruby for implementing uh, middleware itself. Yeah, I know in my work, um, we do a lot of data transforms over large pipes and um, trying to understand how that comes together and having a fluid understanding of, uh, you know, that every every step is done simply and clearly and that it's a reliable pipeline. That's not an easy problem. <laughs> I've been up a lot of a lot of nights in the last few years uh, uh, thinking through these kinds of problems when when things go wrong on that kind of thing. So that sounds very interesting to have a dynamic way to plug in tools and and, and integrate a, a full solution. Yeah. Nice. Now, so I know you work a lot with big data and you build microservices. Are you are you using FluentD with your microservices, or are you doing that more in a more typical Ruby fashion, or or how, how do you use microservices? FluentD is used for all services to collect log logs by any application. So it's not kind of related to the microservices, but rather I create microservices to split some monoliths into the uh, some separated applications, uh, which correspond to the uh, some teams of the company to improve the uh, productivity uh, to develop those components separately. If we share the same application across the teams, it would be very hard or challenging to keep the productivity. I, um, I, I, the way I explain it to my team is, is if I have a monolith, it's this big vertical thing mm -hmm. and it does a lot of complicated things that are hard to understand, but that if I, and I usually, <laughs> when I talk to my team, I, 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 I wave my hands a lot to, to see if they can understand what I think is important. And I, I explain that, well, we go from a vertical monolith and we, we spread it out horizontally so that's replayable and that there are events going across the services and that it's transparent enough that I, I know if it's working and I know if there's a problem, I can replay it and, and, and get it to work well. Is, is that how you think about microservices or, or do you think about it differently? But that's that I, I seem to be like the uh, evangelist always talking about, you know, turning things into a, a very easy to understand pipeline instead of just a big monolith. But anyway, how, how do you think about those kinds of things? Yeah, I I agree with it uh, because uh, simplifying the responsibility of components would make it easier to maintain. So I I may, uh, I also agree that idea too. It's just there's a, a limit to human capacity. I, th I think that we just yeah. need to respect that. You know, I can remember ten things if I'm having an incredible day, three things mm -hmm. on a normal day. And, and if my monolith is doing 500 things, there's just no way I can really understand it. And then I have to trust unit tests I wrote maybe a year or two ago that maybe, maybe I, you know, maybe things have changed or maybe I'm not noticing everything. So I have to find a way to architect my system so that I can understand what, what it's doing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm the bottleneck. <laughs> so I have to architect so that I'm not the bottleneck. <laughs> yeah. yeah, human can't understand or do everything. So microservices are a good abstraction for any engineers. I think so, yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because we get deep into a problem and uh, we have a lot of fun with it and it's all in our head. But I'll bet almost every time within a week after we've solved that problem, we don't remember that. And so if we can't get back to it easily, it's, it's, it's a real struggle. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you know, and I'm sorry for this. Well, actually, I'm not. I like it. I really like and follow DHH's, you know, the master big monolith, you know, because if you can structure your code, if it has a logical flow to it, where everything, you know, is in its own place, then, you know, following it through and debugging or going back and rewriting, refactoring some parts isn't that big of a deal. However, if I'm writing a lot of code within this monolith, that's going to be reused within other applications. 
then it should be extracted into a microservice. You know, or like Microsoft's uh, DLL files, they're just, you know, extractions of a function or something that can then be used by other applications or shared between uh, different apps. So I think breaking out your application just to break it out may not be the right, personally speaking, may not be the right way unless if it is going to be something that's globally shared. So it sounds like you you agree on the idea that it needs to be understood and correct and mm-hmm. that you but you don't uh, and that's a big problem but you don't like to break it out into other services unless unless it's shareable. Yeah, otherwise why break it out? You know there has to be an actual reason to break it out into a microservice, in my opinion. You know, if it's something where I know that this one service or resource uh, function, whatever, is going to be extremely CPU intensive, but I don't want to hurt my web requests or my other users' requests that are coming in while this real heavy thing is going on, then that's a good enough reason to extract it. So it doesn't have to just be globally shared, but there has to be a purpose or reason to extract it, not just for the sake of extracting it. And then that way, that service, I can throw on a whole nother machine, beefier CPUs, whatever, and then have it communicate back to the main application with whatever way it needs to. And then it can have all the resources while I have my own little farm or tier of, web servers handling the bulk of the requests. I like that. I was going to push back a little bit because shareability is definitely a good reason to break it out, but the reasons for resources is well, but it sounds like you agree that if there's a good reason to break it out. The other thing I would say too, is that if, if it's understandable, however you architect your system, as long as it's understandable, you know what each step is. To me, the, the principles are, is it replayable? Are there any, can I handle duplications? You know, if there's duplicate data, can I handle that well? So I can handle replayability and duplications well, and that it's transparent. So as long as I have those, and then however I achieve that, um, um, then that makes a lot of sense, whether it's a microservice or maybe service objects or maybe other things that we could use to, to make sure that it's, it's, it's a good fit. So it sounds yeah. like we agree. Um, yeah. We need to be wise when we break things out, but that we, we do need to have the human, the human limitations <laughs> somehow yeah. as part of the conversation. So this is just an example where <clears throat> on a Ruby on Rails application, I started seeing that my background jobs or my background workers started to consume a lot of memory where they were just doing some really intensive calculations. And we saw that we also had a lot of concurrent requests coming in from users. So my servers, uh, I had a, you know, behind a load balancer, but each one of the web servers were starting to struggle to handle the user traffic because the background job was consuming so much memory that the server wasn't able to spin up new workers to handle the web requests. So uh, I extracted out, just moved the sidekick processes over to a separate server so it was able to get the resources it needed and the web servers were able to handle the requests quickly. So it doesn't have to be your own code. It could be just different architect, uh, different components of your application, whether it's Action Cable, Sidekick, or whatever uh, other add-on that you've had with your application. I like that. I, I've also had that experience with databases where... Um, Sometimes I get uh, intensive processes running in the database and that it gets in the way of operations. And so, you know, replicating the database and, and, and doing some things in other areas, especially, you know, reporting or other things, those are easy to break out. Um, so getting a sense of the whole system, how it's, um, you know, can it run? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I experienced a similar thing for some intensive things. Uh, uh, I our previous our user application has some logging interface that has many so many hot requests, but uh, it's not good for processing by Ruby. So uh, we extracted the logging endpoint to another service 
written in Go language. So uh, Go, as currently, Go language is fa much faster than Ruby. Uh, it's good to handle mm -hmm. many, so many requests. Yeah. I've heard that a lot. People will, if you have the architecture where you can break things out, you can go to Go or, or other languages to do little things here and there if you need to, or big things if that's the yeah. case. Yeah, so microservice is just a one choice to over architecture, to change architecture, yeah. yeah. So it sounds like in general, we're talking about, uh, I mean, we're making the, the core Ruby faster, we're getting concurrent so that we can run more, uh, we're, we're building it in microservices when we need to, um, handling it with types so that it's understandable and more clean. And it sounds like a lot of good ideas for architecting fast, yeah. reliable systems. Yep. Next is serverless. <laughs> <laughs> I love that for hype, for marketing. That's that's brilliant. And then the engineer part of me just cringes every time I hear serverless. Like, of course, there's a server. You just aren't thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. But that's a brilliant way to hype things. <laughs> and I'm very sad that uh, uh, AWS Lambda does not support Ruby for it. For it. And our colleagues using uh, Python because uh, Ruby is not supported by Lambda. So I'm very sad. Uh, do you think that they're going to change it? Like uh, Amazon will wake up and be like, oh, people actually do use Ruby. Maybe we should support it all on Lambda. Mm, I hope they can they support that later. But uh, uh, at least recently, they supported Go language, which is newer than Ruby. So I think it's a little uh, difficult. Because, <laughs> so, mm. I mean, honestly, there's really no difference in supporting Ruby versus supporting Python, is there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're both scripting languages at, at, at their core, you know. You just feed it a file, it runs its thing. You know, why won't you support it? <laughs> Yeah, so, I actually don't understand why they don't support that. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's tied closer to the the dependencies uh, in Python. Python's tight tighter, and with Python um, and things, you can compile it down into fast um, tools. So it might just be just the structure of Python is is. I don't know if I want to call it simpler, but it, it just might. I don't want to champion Python on a Ruby podcast, but there, there are, there are, I think some things that make it a little bit easier to, to just, to, to split it out. Um, especially when we're dealing with dynamic um, use of, of, of Ruby, but, but that might not be fair. That might not be a good enough reason to keep it out of, out of Lambda. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, that's some of their concerns, all they have to say is like, look, if you want Ruby on Lambda, that's cool. We'll support it, but you can't do all this crazy meta programming crap. You can just have a method, give it some parameters, we'll give you an output. I mean, is it really that hard? Come on now. It might not be. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I got an opinion about that if you haven't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've, um, I, I have strong opinions in certain areas, but I've, I've kind of come to embrace this polyglot life that we live. Um, you know, I love Ruby um, and, and I, I use Ruby when I can, but boy, I, I tend to use in a given week, five, six different languages. Um, um, so I don't know if that's typical, but uh, so I guess I don't have that strong of an opinion about, about Ruby and Lambda, but. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Well, should we move on to picks? Yeah, I think so. Well, uh, Takashi, if people want to get a hold of you, where can they go? Hey, when it comes to health, you probably have some of the same disqualifications that I do. You sit all day, you run a busy life. And when you do make it to the gym, the only thing you're really qualified to do is turn the treadmill on. I was an athlete in high school, and so I could have thrown swimming in the mix, but that was about it. And I didn't really know what to do when I decided that I needed to get my health under control, especially since I have type 2 diabetes and I want to be around for my kids. So I contacted my friend JC over at DevLifts, and DevLifts, they did me a huge, huge, huge favor. Sure, it's a paid service, but what they did is they gave me a workout program. They also gave me some eating guidelines, and they have a Slack room where I can go and I can ask questions, and they give weekly challenges on things that I need to do differently. 
I really, really love it. So if you're looking for a way to get into shape, you're looking for a way to improve your health, then go check them out at devlifts.io. That's D-E-V-L-I-F-T-S dot I-O. My picks for you guys is the one. The first one is MD2 Key Gem. It's my Ruby gem that can convert Markdown to Keynote file. So please try that to if you uh, give us some presentation using Keynote. Nice. So a Keynote Keynote from Ruby. I've I've done that a lot of times. The two o'clock in the morning before a presentation of, okay, now I've got to get my slides together. <laughs> so that's your and, pick. And, and then how, how can we get a hold of you to, to find you online or, or follow what you're doing? Um, you can see the, uh, my GitHub repository to know the, see the GIF animation that demonstrates how it works. So please you, you see that. Okay. And I'll just read out your handle there. It's Kakaboon, but mm-hmm. the O is a zero. So K zero K. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, all, co- all version of Kakaboon is very popular in many services. Yeah. <laughs> ah, <laughs> Kokoboon with the zero. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's the beginning. It's the, the, zero, the, the first generation, right? Zero G. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, Dave, how about you? Do you have any picks? Yeah. uh, You know, I haven't been on the show for a few weeks. And so I had like this whole list of picks like picked out and stuff. I forgot them all. So I'll pick my most recent pick that I have. Uh, I just got a new car. I've, you know, had the same car for the past 10, 12 years. You know, no problems with it. But, you know, when it rains, it pours. So, it ended up sort of needing uh, thousands and thousands of dollars of maintenance and work and stuff on it. So it was um, beyond what the car's value was uh, fivefold. So I just picked up a 2018 Honda Civic Si. It is a fun car. I love it. Beautiful. And Eric, how about you? Do you have any picks for us today? Yeah, I got a couple. Um, the first one is a book that I finished reading, um, I think, a couple of weeks ago or last week. Um, it's by Dan Brown, uh, the creator of Da Vinci Code, and the book is called Origin. It's a fantastic book that uh, discover that travels into the world of artificial intelligence and and the the origin of man. So it's it's a fun book to read. The other, the other one I have is uh, an app that I use on my Mac and on my phone, which is uh, called uh, Tunnel Bear. Now I use Tunnel Bear to to funnel any of my network traffic through a proxy that has no logging or anything. Whenever I'm out, so and it automatically turns on. It's got a fantastic UI and interface. But every time I go to Starbucks, it connects to Starbucks on that Google thing, and then it immediately funnels through Tunnel Bear, so all my traffic is is hidden. So, anyway, great products. I love that. I I tend to open up a VPN tunnel all the time when I'm out and about, just because I'm nervous of what's going on. <laughs> I have a gigabit connection at home, so whenever I'm out and about. Uh, I just I have a PFSense server that I built in my basement and it acts as my VPN server. So I just VPN into my home. So all the traffic from wherever I'm at to my home is encrypted. And then I have whatever security protocol set up at home that then safely sends out my traffic. So nice. I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd cool. though. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, uh, Takashi, do you have any other picks that you'd like to share with our, our, our listeners? Anything else that you find interesting or, or fun? I have other library I built, it's, which is called Mitamae. It's a library like Chef, but it's built with MLuby, so it can be executed without Ruby interpreter. It's just a single binary to evaluate the Chef-like recipes. So you can provision your server without Ruby interpreter, but you can still use the Ruby language to provision your servers. Wow, that that's amazing! I didn't realize that it was so portable. That's that's amazing. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Well, 
My pick today, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm in love again, and it's uh, Joan Didion, uh, an author. Oh, my goodness. And so I've read a few of her books recently. Uh, she has currently a documentary on, on Netflix about her life. And the thing that is amazing to me as a software developer, as an engineer, as a human, um, I, uh, I love her mind. So in 1970, she went down to the South and took a few notes. And in 19, or in 2000, goodness, five or 10 or 15, she published a book from that journal. And it's amazing. And it's just as clear about the South and the West that, um, you know, as if she'd written it just barely, if she'd just gone down there. And so anyway, her mind is amazing. So she wrote uh, a year of, magical thinking. She's got this Netflix documentary. She wrote South and West. She wrote a lot of other books. Uh, amazing thinker and incredible. And, and one of the things I love about it is just that um, she's realistic in, and clear in, in, in the present moment with everything she does. And so it seems like that's a good thing for anybody writing software to, to be around people like that, to, to see how, how beautiful our minds can be. So that's my pick today, Joan Didion. Amazing, amazing person. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. Uh, thank you, everybody, for for listening. Um, have a great day. Yep. Talk to you all later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.